You are now listening to the December 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to another program in our Attributes of God series. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Have you ever been sick or diagnosed with a particular disease and asked God to heal you? Or have you interceded in prayer for someone asking God for healing? God knows us so intimately that He knows us down to every cell, atom, electron, neutron, proton, and everything else that is smaller than that. He knows every disease that can afflict us and what can cause us pain. And because he created us, he can also heal us. The first time God is called healer in scripture is when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt. They had already passed through the Red Sea and were in the wilderness of Shur for three days. The people grumbled to Moses because the waters in Marah were bitter, and they could not drink. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord told him to throw a particular tree into the water, and it was made sweet. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, the Lord said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. The Hebrew phrase Yahweh Rophi translates as the Lord who heals, and it describes God as one whose abilities are to restore, to heal, and to cure, not only in the physical sense, but also in the moral and spiritual sense. The Hebrew root verb, rafa, which means to heal, occurs approximately 70 times in the Old Testament. God is our great healer, and he declares it in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, where he says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God hears our prayers for the healing of our bodies, as God heard King Hezekiah's prayer in Second Kings chapter 20, verse 3. And God answered him in verse 5, saying to Isaiah the prophet, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, The God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. 
God also hears our prayers after the healing of nations if the people repent from their sinful ways and return to God. After Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple to God, part of God's promise in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, And my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and will heal their land. As Christians today, grafted into the family of Israel, this applies to us in the nation we live in. God is our healer, and he is the only one who can. Sometimes he heals us directly, and sometimes he gives knowledge to doctors to heal us for him. As Catherine Martin writes in her book, Trusting in the Names of God, she says, We experience healing every day of our lives, and most of the time our healing goes unnoticed and unrecognized. What of our body's immune cells that travel our bloodstream every day in constant surveillance for potential cancer cells? What of the continual restoration and repair of our cell membranes, blood vessels, blood vessel walls, and organ systems? How often does God use the hands of earthly physicians in his healing work? How many times has an antibiotic helped to destroy an infection? When all is said and done, what actually healed the infections, repaired the cells, or restored a bodily process? I believe it is none other than the divine work of Yahweh Rofi. For God himself created the amazing design of the human body and its ability to fight off diseases and infections every day of our lives. In closing our program for today, let me ask you, do you need healing today? Healing from God physically, spiritually, or emotionally? I want to leave you with the words of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 14, where he cries out to God, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. God bless you all. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on those dreaded blind spots that we all have in our personalities. We also talked about the problems that we have when we keep things hidden. And then lastly, we addressed the the issues of dealing with the real guilt and false guilt and the difference between the two. And in this episode, we're going to discuss secrets and why we love those secrets. And in addition to that, the pleasure. There's a false pleasure that gives us a sense or an illusion of control. We'll talk about that as well. All this material that we're talking about today, it comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are the authors of this book. And this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. For more information on the book and these resources, visit walkandtalk.org. And later in the show, I'm going to share with you how you can register for one of Alan's trust webinars. But first, let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. Let's talk about why, from our reaction to these these hatched dragon eggs, to why do we love them in the first place? Why, why do we love our secrets? Is it a, would a secret be a, a good way to... Why do we love our secrets, or why do we love that which provides pleasure? We are in such a pleasure-oriented society that we'll almost do anything for comfort and pleasure. That is the American value. And why do we love it? Because I like to feel good. I mean, I, who likes to, you know, drive second class when you can drive first class? Who, who likes to, uh, you know, not have a bunch of sweets when, you know, uh, when my sweet tooth is saying, hey, I just want that. And I'm not going to think about how much weight it's going to cause me or whether my heart is going to be, you know, ticking or not. I mean, I've had a couple of friends, uh, you know, as we're getting older, a couple of friends that, you know, the doctor has said, if you do not take care of yourself, you are going to die. Now, we all know we're going to die. But when a guy goes to the doctor and he says, you, if you keep on the trajectory that you're going on, you're going to die. And I think, I think what happens is we, we love the feeling of what it is that gives us pleasure so much that our brain goes out the window. And we are, and it, it could be good things. That's the hard part. Sometimes there are men in ministry who are wonderful preachers, wonderful teachers, wonderful men of God, but they go over the edge because they love it so much. And then they start caring about others more than the home front. Or 
their health goes because they're going morning, noon, and night. They're flying around the country. They're writing books. They're, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But I think what happens is we love the pleasure that something gives us to the point where, it, just like Ed was saying, it raises its head above God. And I think in some ways it, it gives us a sense of momentary control over things. And even if we know that there's going to be pain immediately afterwards, we still feel in control in the moment. And our daughter-in-law, JJ, wrote a song called Control. And her, her first lyric goes, the cut goes deep, but never deep enough for me. And it's like, I know in that moment, there's pleasure in cutting myself, even though immediately afterwards there's going to be tremendous pain but for that moment I am in control and everything else in my life is out of control but for this I have control even though it's it's wrong and it's bad and it's unhealthy well it's it's medicating right what you're doing is just medicating and and you know there's something you're trying to hide from there's something you're trying to trying to suppress repress or maybe even get express. depressed. Uh, <laughs> well, it's the, you know there's four ways of handling it. You can suppress, mm-hmm. you can repress, mm-hmm. you can express, or you can do it God's way, and that is confess. Mm-hmm. And so you know all of those things are meant to do kind of those, those things. It's it's medicating, and it, you're exactly right. I feel good at the moment, and doggone it, that's all I care about right now mm-hmm. it's, it's an illusion it's a illu- total illusion mm-hmm. it really is then we talk about how we nurture those dragon eggs and <laughs> you know it, it's once we are deceived into thinking eh, this isn't going to be too bad then we just sort of add fuel to the fire until we catch on fire and then it's too late. Right. We make room for it in our lives. So it says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And uh, if you walk in the spirit, Galatians says, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And so, you know, we nurture our flesh, which is not really us. It's the sin in us is what flesh is. And Paul, at the end of his life in Romans 7, says... You know, I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. Who will set me free from the law of sin and death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, he has set me free. And is there is therefore now no condemnation in 8.1. It says no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think what happens is we nurture our dragon eggs because we forget who we are. And, and we'd like to talk later on in another show about identity. But... Uh, we forget who we are, we forget whose we are, and then we start doing things just like we aren't even God's man or woman. And so we nurture those eggs, but when they hatch, we go, oh my gosh, how did that happen? Amanda said, you know, what harm is one small little dragon? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and she liked it. I mean, mm-hmm. like I, I kid everybody, you know, I said, at first it was a nice hair dryer. You know, you could, you could, she could use a hair dryer. It was manageable. She liked the company. 
Um, you well, know, it was a substitute. It was the high thing. This is it was a substitute, not a supplement. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of became her focus. You become what you focus on. Well, and I think of the illustration in the book about Siegfried and Roy. Here they had these uh, tigers roaming around in their Las Vegas uh, house. And then one time, one of the tigers acted like a tiger and ripped him and pulled him off the stage. And he still has never recovered from that event. But the tiger was just acting like a tiger instead of the tame... You know, we we think it's so great to see how well-managed this beast is, but he's a wild beast, and he acted like one, and everybody was surprised. There are uh, a lot of things that we do in our lives that, um, unlike this cutting illustration, don't have such immediate consequences. We, we do things that we can hide for a while. Nobody really knows what I'm thinking, that I'm harboring an attitude, that I'm allowing myself to grumble inside or to harbor unforgiveness in my heart because it feels right and I deserve to feel this way about the husband who spoke in in such a a mean way to me this morning where does he get off talking to me like that or you know whatever it is this is not a real illustration today but it has happened once or twice (laughs) no i i'm just saying that i can hold things inside of me and nobody knows that they're there again that going into that secret place where i'm holding on to my bitterness and my anger because it feels so justified. And I am right in holding on to this attitude and nobody can see it and nobody can know it until it comes out. It's inevitable. The stumbling blocks will come. And so so when these things come, that offense, you know, I was thinking about the offense. Somebody says, criticizes somebody, so they take that. And then pretty soon it becomes... It escalates in this great big war, you know, with both sides. And it, it's, just, it's just interesting how quickly that thing can become. Unforgiveness, uh, offense. Uh, we see these, you know, it, was it, hating a person is like burning your own house down to kill a rat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a, uh, right. You know, anger not transformed is anger transferred. Yeah. And so that thing is, how do you say it? That thing is very, that's a very potent thing that we're playing with there. Well, that's and like. first uh, it's small. And yeah. then it gets bigger. I think, it, you know, it's like that illustration that, you know, I, I, uh, I'm drinking poison and I'm hoping that you're going to die. Right. And so, you know, we don't, we harbor our unforgiveness. We're the one that ends up in jail instead of the person that we can't stand. So. Uh, I think we say in the book, even cute dragons will follow their nature. And that's really what you were saying, Ed. That's what the illustration is about the tigers. They were following their nature. And the only way we can choose, I think, against our nature, uh, our heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And what, what the New Testament says is the spirit knows <laughs> what you're feeling, what you're thinking. And he's the one that convicts. The only thing is there are times where we have sinned so many times that we have a callous heart. And so even if the Spirit is starting to convict us, we go past the stop sign. We, we go right by it, 
And as long as the cop's car isn't right behind us, we're going, I got away with it. And then pretty soon we are in a dungeon and we don't even know it, which is why I think it's so important that we have men have men, women have women, one-on-one or whether a small group or the body of Christ needs to be willing to be a mirror to each other, self-correcting, which is really Christ-correcting. Well, and here's an example of uh, a small dragon egg that doesn't necessarily seem, it seems fairly innocuous to begin with, that, uh, that sarcasm is funny, that humor uh, can be sarcastic. We, we see it on television all the time, and we, we laugh when we see these remarks on television. But when I use sarcasm against my husband, and he says, I don't like that, and I say, but it's funny. You should laugh. Every, you know, I think it's funny. And he says, no, it's not funny. That hurts. And and then I'm with a group of people, and I make a sarcastic remark about my husband, and everybody laughs, but he feels humiliated. Well, that's, not, that's just not helping my marriage. And if I do that repeatedly over and over again, and those laughs are building me up again, I'm, I feel better about myself because my humor <laughs> is making people laugh and they think I'm funny. But every time I make a remark like that, he's feeling smaller and smaller and more and more devalued. Called disrespect. Disrespected. Dis, uh, I don't know. Uh, abused. Then I, I'm not doing any favors for our marriage. And if I repeatedly do that, I but ex- am expecting different results. I'm expecting him to just keep loving me and never make a response. Uh, a sarcastic remark toward me, then I I am completely, what's the word? <laughs> I don't know. Right. That is not loving your neighbor as yourself, is it? I mean, it's not only about our marriage. Our marriage isn't a goal in itself. Our marriage is to represent Christ and his church. And as a man, I'm supposed to die in order to, you know, die to myself to be able to serve and cherish you. And you're to submit to the Lord, and we are to submit one to another in the fear of God and be able to, you know, first one to the cross wins rather than I'm going to do this at your expense. And every time we do, whether it's humor or whether it's, you know, I know you like this, but I'm not going to buy that for you. Or I know, um, I know in you the morning, don't like this, yeah, but or, I'm going to do it anyway. Right. Or in the morning, you know, every morning I wake up and I try and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm slamming doors and closing drawers and, and, you know, you wake up every time and I'm going, hey, this is what I do in the morning. Leave me alone. What are you talking about? If you, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And I'm, I'm just kind of coming back to that. I'll, I'll give you a story. There were two al- well, boys of alcoholic parents, severe alco- alcoholic parents. And when they grew up, one of them was you know, became a severe alcoholic, and the other one uh, became exactly the opposite, functional in every way, shape, and form, all, all that type of good stuff, you know. And they asked the two boys, you know, how did you end up this way? And they both had the same answer. With my background, what would you expect? Yeah. 
and you see, one learned from it. How do you say one killed the dragon, the other mm. one let, let it grow, and it started running him. So if you retain, it's kind of interesting because, see, if, if you won't forgive is, or, or refuse to forgive, okay? Forgiveness is letting go of all hope that the past will change, okay? If you won't forgive... Um, then guess what? You became, and somebody offended, you became the very person that they are. Because if you won't forgive, you're turned over to the torturers. So you both end up in the same spot right next to each other. Right. And, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what dragon's eggs do. They lead you right back to uh, their roots, if I could say it that way. You know, and, and that's the rough thing about this. That's where being aware of this thing, being aware of the process, and it may seem silly to you right now, we're talking about this stuff and all that, but we're telling you this is where life is lived. It's right here in this area, in these situations. And you know, that's why we wrote the book, it's for you. Wise words from Dr. Ed Delf as we wrap up today's episode of Walking Our Talk. You know, Ed said this. He said, forgiveness is letting go of all hope that the past will change. Isn't that profound? And then he also quoted scripture that deals with forgiveness. And that quote was taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And if you're not familiar with that text, I want to encourage you to read through it today, especially if you're struggling with unforgiveness. Well, next week on Walking Our Talk, we'll discuss three things. Number one, our fear of being exposed. Number two, what happens when we ask for help? And number three, how do all of these life lessons on trust, how do they perfect us into the very image of Jesus Christ himself. Well, to learn more about Dr. Ed Delf, head over to nationstrategy.com. You can also visit Alan and Polly Heller over at walkandtalk.org. You can order this book. It's called Learning How to Trust, and it also comes with a brand new revised application study guide. And once again, this is great. It's just great for your family, your church, or your small group to talk about all of these different trust issues, whether they're family issues or relationship issues at work or within the home. And lastly, if you've got a question for Alan, make sure you sign up for one of his trust webinars. You can do that on walkandtalk.org. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thank you so much for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, I am a child of God, based on 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Today we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. 
and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So did you notice in what we just read how many times John uses family language? Children, born to a father. Even the word brother at the end. So six times we see children. Four times we see born or seed. And God's called father in verse one. Christians are called brothers in verse 10. 12 total references to family in 12 verses. So here's the truth I want you to see today. So you might write this down. If you want to experience assurance of eternal life, you must understand adoption into God's family. If you want to experience assurance of eternal life, you must understand adoption into God's family. More specifically, you must understand that to be a Christian means that you've not just been born, no one is born a child of God. To be a Christian means you have been born again as a child of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to pause for a minute before we dive into the intricacies of this text. And I want us to get some perspective. I want to introduce you to a brother I met in Ethiopia in July named Tamarat. So Tamarat, if you could join me up here. We had, would you, would you welcome Tamarat with me here and at other campuses? We had, many of you know, many of you were there. We had over 200 members of our church family in Ethiopia. And uh, just to give you a perspective, uh, Tamarat had the responsibility of coordinating and directing and leading where teams, a variety of teams of 200 people were spreading out across the capital of Ethiopia. I thought the brother, when I first met him, like, was just an incredible mission trip coordinator, like masterful. But this was kind of a side deal that he was doing for us. He actually leads a whole ministry to orphans in Ethiopia, which we've had the opportunity to partner together with. So I, I want to introduce him to you, but I want you to hear a little bit about his story. So, uh, so Tamarat, tell us, give us a, a, a picture, just yeah, how you grew up, your life growing up. When I was three years old, my father died, and I grew up with my grandma till I was six. So at age six, I joined an orphanage down south in Ethiopia, and I grew up there uh, in a Christian orphanage hearing God's word. But I was on and off, and I really did not understand what it really takes to be a child of God. But when I reached age 18, uh, when I was preparing myself to graduate from high school, I experienced to be a child of God. I get connected to Christ in a personal way. It was so unique, and I say to myself, now I have become a child of God. I mean, uh, most of you who grew up with your parents, having a father, you know, you have God as a father, but this meant a lot for me as a fatherless. I have God no earthly father between. So that feeling was so powerful for me that made me to commit my life to follow this God who created the universe. And now I have even a bigger God. I mean, I have a bigger father than 
all people who have early fathers. So that was an encouragement for me uh, whenever I go through different life circumstances. I always say, I have God. That's in a unique way. So I, I have a family now. I have three boys and a girl, uh, Barnabas, Paul, Silas, and Lydia. I call them my apostolic team. <laughs> so one day, my son came and asked me, Dad, you haven't had a dad like a dad. And you grew up in an orphanage. And he asked me, how is it so that you are a good dad to us? Where did you learn that? Where did you get that from? And I say to my son, son, I have God as a father. And everything that I'm today is because I know my father in heaven who takes good care of me. And that's where I learned to be a good dad. In the orphanage that I'm working today, this is my intention. I have learned God to be my father and I want children in Salamta Family Project to experience God as their father because it really means a lot for a child growing up in an orphanage or a child growing in Salamta Family Home. Knowing God as a father will change their world and that is what I have experienced God is my father. Like when I say he's my father, I really mean it like he's my father. He's been with me through ups and downs. His love never changed. Each time I go astray, he kept chasing me, bringing me back to the right track. And this is the God I worship. This is the God I serve. And this is the God I want our children to know him personally. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Just to give you a picture, so that Tamarat leads this ministry called Salamta, and instead of being kind of a, a more traditional orphanage, uh, what they do is they actually take children who are orphans and put them in homes with family, with brothers and sisters, uh, parents, and, uh, and where they will belong to that family, just like any child will belong to that family uh, till they go to be with the Lord. Like. And in the process, they show these kids God as Father. So that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. As we walk through this text, I want you to picture the Christian life in these terms. I, I think I've shared this quote before. It's from one of my favorite books of all time, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I can't recommend that book highly enough to you. But in it, Packer asked the question, what is a Christian? And this is his answer. What is a Christian? He writes the Question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Packer goes on to explain how the New Testament teaches that over and over and over again. And he points to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 as one example. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Packer goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So I read that and I think, I want to understand Christianity well. I want 
the people in this church to understand Christianity well, which means I want us to make much of the thought of being God's child. Having God as our father, as your father. I want that reality to prompt and control your worship and your prayers and your work and your friendships and your marriage and your family, your entire outlook on life like we just heard. And this text just does it today. Speaking of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, from the first words in verse 28, little children, who's, John has already said he's talking to true believers in Christ, those with saving faith in Christ. So I just want you to hear, maybe to write down, let's soak in five truths for the Christian. Here they are. Number one, for the Christian, God is our perfect father. God is our perfect father. And this is just like we heard, this is really good news for students in this gathering right now, adults who either don't or have not had a dad, or maybe you, you don't or have not had a, a good loving dad. It's good news to hear that God is our perfect father. And you know that's good news even if you grew up or have now under, you grew up under or have now a great dad because it's still good news because God is a lot better than him. <laughs> He's so much better than him. He's infinitely better than your good dad. God is perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly wise. God always knows what is best for us. God is perfectly powerful. He is never unable to act on his children's behalf. God is perfectly knowledgeable. He knows everything about our lives. There's nothing hidden from him, past, present, future. God is perfectly good. So Christian, this perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, sovereign God of the universe is your dad. He's your father in heaven. See what kind of love the father, God, has given to us. Some translations say lavished on us, that we should be called his children. I love that phrase. Uh, what kind of love? Some translations say what manner of love or such a great love. So the word in the original language of the New Testament occurs only seven times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it implies like astonishment, amazement. Originally, the adjective meant of what country? So think about it. It's like John is saying, the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to anything else we know or experience in this world. It's otherworldly. Christian God has otherworldly love for you. Right where you're sitting. Like, don't let this just go to other people generally. Like right where you're sitting here, other campuses, God is your heavenly Father. You belong in his family so follow this, salvation is not just God as judge sitting on a bench and declaring you forgiven of all your sins as if that's the end of the story. Yes, when you place your faith in Jesus, God as judge forgives you of your sins, but then he rises from the bench, comes down to where you are, takes off your chains and says, come home with me as my son or daughter. God says this to you. God does this for you. That's otherworldly. That's so foreign. How is that even possible? Well, second truth, Jesus is our perfect brother. Jesus is our perfect brother. Now that feels almost inappropriate to say because we think of Jesus as savior, our Lord, our King, not as our brother, 
But listen to what the Bible teaches. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Listen to how Jesus refers to his disciples. After he rose from the dead in Matthew 28, verse 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. My brothers, there they will see me. John 20, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. God the Father, Go to my brothers, say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In Mark 3, 35, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the unique son of God, God in the flesh, but he's also our perfect brother who made it possible for us to be adopted into the family, which is what 1 John 3 is all about. You look at the descriptions of Jesus here. Chapter two, verse 29, he's righteous. Chapter three, verse three, he's pure. Verse five, we learn that in him there is no sin. He's perfect, righteous, pure, totally without sin. Sin is nowhere to be found in Jesus's nature. He is totally unlike us. He is our perfect brother who came, verse five says, to take away sin. Look at verse eight. Follow this, the reason the son of God appeared. Why? Why did Jesus, the son of God, our perfect brother, appear? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Think about that. The whole point in that verse, 1 John 3 is teaching, the devil's work is sin. That's what the first part of that verse, verse 8 says. The devil has been sinning since the beginning. Since Genesis 3, the devil has been tempting men and women, every single one of us, to turn aside from God's way to our own way, tempting us to turn away from God, leading us away from life to death. That is the devil's work. And Jesus came to destroy that work forever. How did he do that? Well, that's 1 John 2, 1 and 2, which we've already studied. Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came, he lived without sin, and then he died to pay the price for sin as a propitiation, a sacrifice for our sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and the devil. That's a good big brother to have. (laughs) One who has conquered death (laughs) and the devil. And the Bible teaches that all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus are welcomed in to the family as children of God. Oh, I've prayed that today, right before came up, you were just pleading before God, please, oh God, Adopt people in your family today. I just pray. I know some of you are here right now and you do not know you are a child of God. You do not know God as Father because you've not put saving faith in Jesus. You've not trust, turned from your sin yourself and put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I invite you to be adopted by God today. Like today, that can happen right where you're sitting. Become a child of God. That's a great day. An eternally great day. Now, the problem is, we'll keep going here, God our perfect father, Jesus our perfect brother, even after we come into God's family, so we're adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus, here's the third truth, we are imperfect children. We're imperfect children. That's what we've seen all over First John as we've been studying this book. None of us is a perfect child of God. We all still struggle with sin. 
just on a personal level, this is part of how God has used First John in my life this last month. I've become so much more aware of sin in my own life. I would say far more aware the last few weeks than I was before we started this study. I've just been convicted about sin on different levels in different ways. I won't go into all the details, but earlier this week I was preaching down in New Orleans where I used to live many years ago. I did my seminary theological education there. And as I was spending time with God on Tuesday morning, I was freshly convicted of sin that I had not confessed to God or to others during my time in New Orleans years ago. And it was, it was painful just thinking about it. Shameful in a sense. And my first thought was, I don't even want to admit that before God or anybody else. I just want to sweep that under the rug. But I knew based on First John that I couldn't. So I went to two particular people that I had sinned against and just confessed that to them. It was embarrassing. I did not want to do it. But I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 4 there, which talks about how God will one day bring to light things hidden in darkness. And I realized I need to do this now. It's an obedience issue. Just like, I mean, just like everything we're walking through in 1 John was just flooding into my heart. I just need to tell you how good a father we have in God. So ashamed, I confess my sin to these brothers and both of them just poured out God's grace on my life. They forgave me and ended up encouraging and affirming me. I was in tears. I'm so sinful. And God is so merciful. We are imperfect children. I am. You are. We all, even as children of God, we sin which 1 John 3, 4 here defines as lawlessness. We break God's law. We all do things our own way instead of God's ways. It's the attitude of our heart that says either, I don't want to know what God says, I just want to do what I want to do. Or I know what God says and I'm going to disobey it. Which is a horrible thing for a son or daughter to say to a father. A father whose ways are always, always, always loving and good and best. That's the difference between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. I think about it. I, I love my kids over here. Parents across this room love their kids. We don't wish ill for our kids. So we try to teach them, try to show them how to live in ways that will be good for them. Would never want to hurt them. Yet sometimes we don't do what's best for them. Maybe we give them counsel that's not good because we're not perfect. Heather and I often look at each other and say, who put us in charge of these kids? We don't know what we're doing. How do we parent? What are we doing? This or that circumstance. But here's the beauty. God never asks that. What do I do? He's perfect. He never doesn't know what to do. He never, ever, ever, ever gives bad counsel. Never. He's our perfect father. He always knows what is best. Always tells us what is best. Yet, we are prone to not trust him prone to rebel against his word. That's the essence of sin here. And to make it even more sobering when we sin, since we're not following God, our Father, then who are we following when we sin? 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, of the thought. Like whenever we sin, we're like the devil, acting in outright rebellion against God, 
Whenever we sin, like the smallest sin in our lives, we are following the devil who hates us and wants to lead us to death instead of our perfect father who loves us and wants to give us life. So when this happens, when we sin, what does the imperfect child of God do? The imperfect child of God does what we've seen Already in 1 John, we confess our sins knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. If we sin, 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus, our perfect brother, is our advocate whose sacrifice covers over our sins so we confess our sin, we turn from it by his grace, by his mercy. Come back to him as our Father. We say, I'm sorry. I don't wanna do that. Anymore. I don't want to think that. I don't want to desire that. I think about my dad. I love my dad. His birthday actually would have been today if he had not suddenly, unexpectedly gone to be with the Lord years ago. And I love my dad because he loved me so much. He was the kind of dad, just active and my life in every way, just caring for me, always coaching me at every game, my biggest fan and best friend. And I obviously look back then with regret on times when I dishonored him or disobeyed him. He was so good to me. When I did things that I thought were best, but would inevitably learn that he's a lot wiser than I am. And I would go to him And he would, of course, forgive me. And as we would talk, what would happen is I would learn more and more and more to trust him. This is the Christian life. Daily learning to trust God more than we trust ourselves. When we sin against him, going to him, receiving his forgiveness and growing in our experience of the good life that our perfect father desires, has designed for us. This is Christianity. Imperfect children with a perfect father growing in his grace to know and trust and love him more and more and more. Which leads to the fourth truth. We now live to display the family likeness. We now live to display the family likeness. So put all this together. God is our father. Jesus, our brother. We are imperfect children, but Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Sin does not have power over us anymore. We are free to experience life as children of God, so we grow more and more and more into the likeness of our Father. We see this in our own families, right? Don't, don't we see ourselves? If you're a parent, you see yourself and your kids in good ways and not so good ways. Parents and you sometimes, I sometimes look at Heather and say, I've become my dad. She'll look at me and say, I've become my mom. And again, good ways, bad ways sometimes, right? But the good thing is, when God is your heavenly father, the more you become like him, the better it always is. So I was, uh, just happened to be in my Bible reading this week in Ephesians chapter five, verse one. Be imitators of God as beloved children. I thought, that's it. That's the Christian life, growing to imitate our father as his children, specifically being conformed in the image of our brother, right? Put this together with one of our favorite verses that we go to all the time, Romans 8, 28. Then think about it in verse 29 right after it. We know that for 
Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to purpose. Even the toughest things in life, God's working together for good. Well, what's the purpose that he's working together, these things together for? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The whole point there is our purpose is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. All things are working together toward that end that we might become more and more and more like Jesus. This is the Christian life, growing to look more and more and more like Jesus, which is why, 1 John 3 says all that it does. Look at, look at verse 2. We know that when he appears, this is what we're looking forward to, we shall be like him. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then it's after John says this that he talks about how we don't keep on sinning. And if we do keep on sinning, it's a sure sign that we don't know Jesus, that we're not children of God. Listen to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now again, when John says keep on sinning there, he's not saying that the Christian, the child of God never sins. We've already talked about that. The word picture here is a picture of actively, continually sinning without confession, without repentance, without any desire to turn from sin. What the Bible's saying here is for the Christian, for the child of God, persistent sin against the Father without confession and repentance is inconceivable. It's not what a child of God, a child of God is born by his, born again by his spirit. His seed lives in you. You have new life in him and you're growing into his likeness. So you flee sin. And if or when there comes a point when you fall into sin, you don't stay there and live in it. You leave it. You hate it. You confess it. You fight it. And the next time you're tempted, you fight it with greater vigilance and greater passion because you hate it all the more. Why? Because you want to be like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You want to follow Christ with your life and you hate the fact that you still fall short because you don't want to fall short anymore. You want to please your father. You want to follow his ways and enjoy his life. And as a result, you can't wait till the day when you won't sin anymore, which leads to the final truth. Christian, child of God, we are looking forward to the family reunion. We're looking forward to the family reunion. Now, I don't know what comes in your mind when you hear the term family reunion. And for some of you, it's not like a positive time. So, uh, so if that's the case, uh, just get that out of your mind for a minute. That was my only danger in using these words. I was like, oh, but some people dread these. So this is not the kind you dread. So from the first verse we read in this passage, we hear about Jesus coming. Not just his first coming when he came to destroy the works of the devil, but his second coming. Verse 2, chapter 3. We read about his coming or his appearing and the word there refers to the arrival of a king or a ruler with splendor and majesty. Jesus came once, 2,000 years ago, as a baby, born in a manger to destroy the devil. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back again. Anytime, any day, could be today. This time he's not coming as a baby. He's coming as a king and not in a manger. He'll be riding on a white horse and he won't be coming to destroy the devil. He'll be coming as the one who has already destroyed the devil to claim that which belongs to him. First John chapter three, verse two says, we are going to see him. Like physically, literally visibly. There's gonna be a day when suddenly, instantly, we're gonna see him. Out of the blue, we're gonna see him in all of his glory. So Christian, 
look forward to that day more than you look forward to anything else. Like look forward to that day more than you look forward to your wedding day. Look forward to that day more than you look forward to graduation or vacation or retirement or your next promotion or your next raise or your next purchase or whatever. Look forward to that day more than anything else in this world because on that day, we're gonna see him and we are going to be like him, free from sin, free from sorrow, free from death. Free to live forever as children of God. God, our perfect father, Jesus, our perfect brother, and brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue, the adopted family of God. I, uh, I was reading, praying this last week for the request that people submitted on response cards. And without using any names, here's just a sampling from them. One person said, my, my husband's first cancer treatment is tomorrow. My friend has stage three cancer. Another, my, my dad just learned he has stage four lung cancer. My family needs a miracle right now. Levon, one of our pastors, longtime church members, is in critical ICU right now. We're waiting to hear prognosis for the future. Another writes, my spouse is walking away from God and from our marriage. We have three young children. Many others, I need prayers for God to restore my marriage. Restore my husband, my wife. One writes, pray for me as I look for a home. I am special needs, 25 years old. My mom can't take care of me, so I'm living in an elderly home right now, and I want to be around people closer to my age. Another pray for my coworker who just lost her daughter to suicide. I can go on and on just, uh, and those things that were written down, and they are a microcosm of what is represented around this room and other campuses right now. I know that different hurts and pains and struggles. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind us today, based on God's word in 1 John, that we have a Father in heaven who is perfect. We have a perfect brother at his right hand right now who is interceding for us in the middle of all these things. He knows all of them. And one day, the father is going to say to the son at his right hand, it's time. And the son is going to come back. And on that day, cancer will be no more. And special needs will be no more. And divorce will be no more. And broken relationships will be beautifully restored and sin and sorrow will totally cease cease, and death itself will fully and finally be destroyed. So as imperfect children, let's live every day to grow into his likeness. And as we do every day, let's fix our eyes on the sky, looking forward to the family reunion. We will see his face join with family from all nations and every generation as he wipes away every tear from your eye forever. You will know the wonder of what it means to say, I am a child of God. God. Will you pray with me? Oh God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise your name for the love that you have lavished on us. God, I pray, kids, some students, some adults who see they're separated from you, that 
Maybe they've even gone through religious motions in their lives, but they don't know you as dad, as father. Through Jesus, I pray you would bring them into the family even right now. Bring them to put their faith and their trust in you in their heart right now, I pray. And that in the process, you would also, oh God, by your spirit, just encourage your sons and daughters in the middle of whatever they're struggling with and sin in their lives, in the middle of sorrow, they're enduring, they would know they're loved by you, forgiven of their sin, free from its power, and filled with your hope in the midst of even the darkest days. That you are with them and you're working even these things for good and ultimately they will not have the last word. At your grace and your mercy, your love as our Father will have the last word. All glory be to your name, our Father in heaven. In Jesus, our perfect brother's name we pray. Amen.
are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.